Hey, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and today on LGBTQ&A, I'm talking to Joseph Osmondson. He's got a new book out called Inside Out, which talks about a relationship and not a good one. Specifically, it talks about the gray area in a relationship between what is abuse and not abuse and how oftentimes people like you and me listening, we won't even agree. And then something else that I love about Joe that we talk about is that he identifies as queer, but allows himself the flexibility to use different words to describe his sexuality and gender, depending on what just feels right in the moment. And that sounds confusing, I promise it's not. You'll see, and I think that it's really a great example for all of us. Before we get to that though, if you like our podcast, please subscribe, rank us five stars, and leave a comment on iTunes. Specifically, leaving a comment is one of the biggest ways you can help new people find our show. And then don't forget, to check out our old home at AfterBuzz TV for all your favorite after show discussions. All right, without further ado, here's Joe. So you're a writer. Your new book is called Inside Out, but you're also a scientist. You have a PhD in molecular physics. Is that right? Molecular biophysics. Yeah. Molecular uh-huh. biophysics. Uh-huh. I bring that up because obviously that affects your writing in ways both overt and not. Yeah. But one of the anecdotes from your book that stuck with me was from one of your science classes yeah. about the floss. Yes, indeed. It's actually one of my favorite moments. That that was going to be in the book from the beginning. Oh, really? Yeah. It was one of like almost the central metaphors that I was thinking about in writing the book is like sort of what we let inside and what we don't. Yeah. And so the notion, the sort of mechanistic biological notion of the fact that like your body actually has a skin all the way through the inside of it, that like just because something is in your stomach does not mean that it's in your body. And and do you mind explaining that for the listeners exactly? um, Basically, there's an epithelium, which just means an inside out, like a literal literal boundary between the inside of your body and your out. It's It's a bunch of cells, right? And so if something doesn't make it past that line of cells, it is technically outside of your body, even if it's inside your stomach. So what's in your stomach? what's in your digestive system what's in your bladder all of that is technically outside of the body right it's outside of the epithelium so it's like it sort of is a way that you um you know it's a physical barrier it's a part of the immune system as well there are immune cells all there sort of not allowing things in and recognizing things that might be pathogenic like viruses or bacteria Unless something actually passes that epithelium you know it's inside it's inside your stomach but outside your body so my my physiology professor actually had this metaphor where he was like you know i could put a pebble or a rock on a string swallow it you know pat wait for it to pass and i would have a string coming out of my ass and a string coming out of my mouth and i could floss myself with it but all the entirety of that string would be still outside of my body um so that that is very much some of the you know the type of thing that i'm trying to play with in the book is like what what constitutes what's inside of us and what constitutes what's outside of us yeah and how sometimes things that things just aren't quite what they seem. Yeah. And it was just like a fascinating way to like represent the relationship Uh that you write about Mm -hmm. being inside and outside and that you, um, for a lot of it felt like you were outside. Of course. And so did he. Right. So I think that we both constructed a narrative of the relationship where we were both sort of outside and that allowed us to kind of, um, treat one another in ways that were less than kind and less than loving. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you bring that up and it's like, what was the line between things that are emotionally abusive and mm. things that are just supremely cruel? Just shitty. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that is, so that's one of the central questions of the book and it's really what the book is trying to grapple with, I think. Uh, and I, and I hope, I truly hope there are people who read the book and sort of disagree or feel uncomfortable with it. I think that's a, a huge, you know, 
physical abuse, like someone hitting you, someone harming you physically, um, someone sexually abusing you, is super easy to name and call that abuse. And, and, and we obviously sort of know those patterns of abuse and how to try to help people who are in those situations. But the line between emotional abuse and dysfunction uh, is a very porous one. It's very hard to specifically say, well, you're gaslighting me and I'm calling that abuse. I really think that he struggled with what was true and what was not true in his own life. You know, there's a character in Infinite Jest, David Foster Wallace's uh, epic novel that is like super insufferable also. Um, Oren, who who literally is not dissimilar from the person I was dating, who um, sort of imagines giving pleasure to all these women as like this is the best gift that he can give to them and literally lies so much almost to like help create their pleasure that he loses sense of what is real and what isn't. And I felt that way in the relationship. Yeah. I think that an example that stands out to me is that at one point he told you, I'm just not that and do our sex. Mm. And is that abusive? Mm. No, but it's breathtaking and it's cruelty. Oh, it was when he was hurt, he was breathtakingly cruel. Abuse is a pattern of behavior, right? And I think that I named this in the book as abuse um, because it wasn't an instance. And it wasn't like he would get mad or angry uh, and say something cruel. It was like the cruel behavior was trying to control what I was doing. I mean, the central rupture here, I think, is about um, sex and fidelity and how we construct a relationship. And I didn't need, and nor do I need now, a fully monogamous relationship. But what I do need is like, trust and communication to build a relationship that feels good to me to know that I'm not being lied to about, you know, sort of, whereas this was pre-Truvada as well, right? And we were having unprotected sex. So I would tell him like, I really need to be able to trust that you're not sleeping with other people because there's a risk to that. Um, and I just want to be able to make my decisions about my body and my risk. Like I could know that you're sleeping with other people that you're using condoms with other people and still want to have unprotected sex with you. But I would like the option of making that choice with open, clear eyes. Um, and I was sort of never granted that option. That certainly was happening, and I probably knew that was happening, um, but there was no conversation about it. And that was my fault as well, right? Like, I knew all this. I knew a lot of the premises of the relationship that I was engaging in, and I was still there. I caught him on Grinder so many times when he was not supposed to be on Grinder, right? If you want to be on Grinder, ask to be on Grinder. Like, you know, there are ways to make a relationship that make you happy. Ask for what you want and negotiate what makes both people feel safe. Um, so why in that instance do you stay with somebody like this? That's the whole premise of the book. That is That was the fundamental reason I wrote this book. And the book does not answer that, but I like that it sheds insights like a bad relationship is not bad all the time. Absolutely. There are good parts of it. Oh, and in a, a dysfunctional or abusive relationship, the highs feel higher than any high I've known in a relationship because you're kept, again, using the metaphor of the outside, it's like you're kept outside so often and all you want is just that other person. It's like you want that little, and then when that person gives you that little bit of sex or that little bit of attention or that little bit of affection, it feels better than it does in a healthy relationship because you, you spend so much time feeling shitty. I mean deeply deeply shitty right and so i think before i had this really hard relationship uh i really came up with the idea like oh you know if you're being abused or if you're in a dysfunctional relationship just leave like that should be easy you'll be happier if you leave and certainly i was happier after i left but what i didn't understand is a couple of things um as how um, abusive or dysfunctional relationships sort of play on your insecurities to keep drawing you back in Right. There's a, a pattern, a cycle. I, the, the book opens with a scene from my childhood because I, 
I also understood that sort of the traumas of being bullied as a child were still affecting me in my 30s. And that was a huge part of the dynamic of this relationship. At that time, could a friend have sat you down and been like, this is unhealthy? Did they? All of my friends. Like, I just think about that a lot. Like, what is my duty to my friends who are in bad relationships? And um, if it's an early relationship, well, like, hopefully they'll break up and they'll learn their lesson on their own. But like a year in, it's like, now it's too late. My friends... We all sort of have a lot of patience for one another's bad relationships. You know, we've all, most of my friends, we've been friends for like decades. We've been through this type of shit together. It's like, I'll listen to you tell the same story about the same fuck boy a hundred times. And I don't really get bored of that. And I have a lot of friends who kind of have given me that gift in turn. But yeah, it made me not a very good friend. You know, I complained about the same shit a lot. And they all sort of sat me down and said, you know, I, you're going to be done with this. You know, my best friend said, you know, you're done with this when you want to be done with it. I imagine too that as somebody as smart as you, when they're telling you these bad things about it, that intellectually you're like, well, of course you're right. I mean, you know, the thing is, so one of the things I work on in therapy all the time okay. is that like there's a huge difference between emotional intelligence and intellectual intelligence. Um, I am not always the most emotionally intelligent people when it comes to being discerning about others. Like I am often very forgiving, too forgiving. I'm not great at making boundaries, emotional boundaries, um, once I sort of have let someone inside of my life. I don't know if this like touches like much of a base reduction, but I can't help but wonder, is that what we get from growing, growing up queer, mm. where we didn't have many friends, mm-hmm. and so we had to be forgiving to people? Oh, absolutely. Or we would have no friends. Absolutely. I mean, I just, I think that's right. And, and again, like, you know, being excluded from like all of the little like inner cliques. Like I would kind of grew up like very, you know, nerdy and all those things. So that trauma of growing up queer, growing up outside, growing up different, I was shocked at how insecure it made me in my th- Like I feel like I'm a very, you know, I love my life. I, I love how nerdy and smart I am now. Like I love being queer. You know, I feel like I've, I've healed from a lot of that trauma in a lot of important ways. And yet those insecurities are still carried in me. It's kind of like, it's like a stretch marker, a scar where it's like, I don't feel the pain acutely anymore, but the mark is still sort of on my body. And I think it, I just kind of think it always will be. Yeah. It just always will be. And I appreciate that you are so open about therapy. Um, Mm -hmm. now, especially on Twitter as well, Jeffrey masters, (laughs) uh, there's a weekly uh, tweets about uh, therapy. And I think it's like so healthy to talk Um, about, you know, a lot of people give me shit about it. And do they, they do. it is super important to me. To, I, it, the, I also think the tweets are hilarious. The 2017 was a really rough year for me. One of the things I learned is that sort of the comedy of how bad things can go is really super hilarious. I'm not sure if you are privy to this, Jeffrey, but after I got dumped by my boyfriend last year, um, I was starting to feel better and like get back to, you know, a normal life. And then my butt exploded. I literally had like an abscess in my butt and it exploded and I had to have surgery. So it was just like the year just was kicking me when I was down. It was just so funny to me. I was like, on these antibiotics my stomach was really upset i was bleeding from everywhere i just was like laughing so i mean crying a lot because it's horrible but like that shit is so funny to me you know so um the therapy tweets are both very serious and like it's something you know i got on medication and um am very serious about therapy Uh, i find it both sort of hilarious and deeply sad and deeply real um and I just, I'm not the type of person who can keep my private life private. Like it is very, it's very easy for me to talk to friends about what's going on in my life. Um, 
including things that are taboo like sex and mental health. Um, and I kind of extend that more or less to my to my writing. I think it does. Uh, to pull an example from your writing, something that I think would make a lot of people uncomfortable is what you wrote about um, <laughs> HIV. Mm. There was a part of me that wishes he had given me HIV. Yeah. The physical connection between us, something yeah. from his body that I can carry in mind forever proof that, he's one, that he was once mine. Yeah. So I wrote about the same person, um, an HIV essay that was turned into a short HIV book called Capsid. Um, sort of about the experience of being with someone who is um, who I found out was cheating on me. That book ended with two different endings, one where I have HIV and one where I don't. And it's I call it nonfiction and it's an essay, but I don't ever say which one was true. And that was a super important experience for me to be so public about that. And everyone kind of assumed I had HIV because I was leaving the question open. And I think the assumption is if you even leave the question open, you'd only do that if you were HIV positive. Um and that helped me move past a lot of my own sort of internalized HIV stigma because I realized like I have many friends who got HIV from relationships in which they were monogamous. Right. So this notion that like, it just was me, like it literally was like I, when I got tested for HIV after that relationship, like there's no reason that I'm HIV negative and not HIV positive. It's the same outcome. Basically I was in the situation that put me at risk for it. It stopped me because you don't hear a lot of people writing that, mm -hmm. you know, in print, even if they feel that way. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people who are your friends and mentors teach you what you're doing in your own work. And Kiese Lehman, who generously wrote a blurb for this book, um, wrote in his blurb that it um, obliterates spectacle. Uh, and it, and I didn't realize that that's what I was trying to do, that I was trying to be so open, um, painfully open about my life and my own body that it sort of would push even past um, like spectacle, past the notion of like portraying a body for that body's sake um, to try to do something deeper than that. Like what does it mean to expose a queer body so fully, like almost the insides of that body as well. You know, some, some of the scientific things like are exposing like my molecules, my inside, like some of the sex stuff is like, people are like, Oh my, like the, the review in the stranger that was like, there's a, a rim job gone wrong. Like that, that, that shit is in the book, like learning how to douche, um, you know, properly is in the book. A lot of these things that I think are hidden, parts of queer life. Um, I wanted to expose that. Yeah. I, and I felt so exposed by the relationship that I sort of wanted to do that on the page. It was deeply healing for me to do that on the page. It would like push past shame. All of my writing, I always say this, all of my writing is about shame, but I never want to use that word. I sort of want to, um, you to feel the shame on the page and then feel the transcendence of that pain, feel the push through the shame that, that, that I, you know, the writing, I want it to be so bare that shame isn't even a possibility. And I, I really like, too, that in your writing, you assume that the audience is smart. <laughs> and I think a great example of that is you date men and women. Mm -hmm. We're talking about an ex-boyfriend because that was mm -hmm. mainly the basis for the book. And there's like a small section in the book mm -hmm. where you do mention dating women. Yeah. And I just liked that it wasn't a big deal about yeah. the story. So you didn't make it a big deal. No, I don't. And and that's I, I sort of um, I view my work as sort of like tiered, I guess, in that um, I'm always writing to people who are like the closest to my community. It's I, I view it as like legibility or literacy, right? So in the in the book Capsa that I wrote, um, I don't call poppers poppers, I call it amyl, right? And and I know that what is amyl? It's it's amyl nitriles is the, the oh. molecule that makes up poppers, right? Oh, that's funny. So I know that not only like not even every 
homosexual is going to know that Amo is poppers. Um, but I sort of want that level of that. It's sort of a pyramid of literacy that everyone sort of feels the emotional resonance. Everyone knows more or less what's going on, but then I'm, I'm not translating. That's the thing. I'm not translating sort of these terms that I would use with my girlfriends, the closest people to me, the most queer people in the world. I'm not really translating those in my writing. I just let them sit. I let them sit there on the page. And also I do that because we have Google now, right? So yeah. if someone reads the word ammo and doesn't know what it is, they can Google the fuck out of it and they'll know exactly what it is, right? So they are allowed into the into the work, but they have to maybe do a little more work to do that. And I very much do that around being queer or um, dating both men and women. I just let it sit on the page. And, and we don't also don't need a sanitized version no, of your queer life. There's so much um, queer art that, that sanitizes, that makes us safe and palatable for middle America. And I'm really, I, you know, I'm, I, I, do, I do science. That's my day job. You know, I do a podcast. Uh, I wouldn't write if I were writing that stuff. I just, it's not interesting to me. I'm not, I don't, I'm not trying to be a writer just to make work that is read by a lot of people. I want to make work that is, is different and is hard and is challenging and is, is deeply queer. And that sort of doesn't translate to middle to it, my work is not <laughs> this, this book in particular, my God, this book is not trying to be palatable, right? Like not at all. it's, it's, it's hard. And I have to stand up. What I didn't realize when I was reading this book is I'm on tour now and I have to stand up and read this shit in front of rooms full of people. My mom came to the first reading. The first reading was in my hometown in Seattle because I was there for Christmas. My mom came, my sister came, my aunt came, family friends came, two of my motherfucking high school teachers came. And right? what section did you read? I, there's nothing I can read in this book that is not, like I can't pick 10 minutes to read in this book that is not going to have a douching scene in it. You know what I mean? Like there's just, that's what the book is. Um, and I just, I made the decision. I talked to Tommy Pico, who is a good friend of mine and I'm on the podcast with. Um, and I, Tommy just said, just read what you, you know, this is all practice, right? I, I need to read what I'm going to read. And so I just read what I, what I've read everywhere else. And it was hard. Going back really quickly to mm -hmm. uh, dating men and women. You've gotten away recently, you said, from the word bisexual. Is that right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Can you talk about why that is? Yeah, I mean, bisexual, it's really a semantic issue for me. It already assumes that there's a gender binary. Yeah. Um, and I'm not a gender binary person. <laughs> um, I sort of, uh, I use the word queer because it allows for infinite possibilities. It's sort of the Jose Esteban Munez, the queer futurity, like queerness is reaching toward a horizon that will never actually be um, arrived at. Uh, I like how open it is. Um, I certainly, you know, gender and gender presentation aren't really a thing to me in terms of sexual and romantic attraction. So it just allows me to, you know, have a multiplicity of attractions, I guess. When you talk about the gender binary and people you're attracted to or not seeing or not recognizing it, I guess, yeah, yeah, yeah. like the rest of the world. Do yeah. you, I mean, are you genderqueer? Like, do you recognize like that in yourself? <sighs> I do for sure. Um, I don't feel super binary, but I also don't really own a trans identity um, either. I, I sort of, um, I just feel like I don't want to take up, I feel like that, insert, I, it, as I exist in the world, uh, people read me as a cis dude um, and I don't sort of correct that. I also don't feel super attached to that identity. I feel like if I, you know, were, were claiming a trans identity, I feel like that would kind of take up a lot of space in that conversation and yeah. that's not really 
um, what my testimony is right now. I think that um, we, I, I think maybe you and I are closer to the same page of our gender, whereas we are, we are assigned male, yeah. we like uh, recognize in ourselves, and yet we behave in gender non-conforming ways, sure. although we do not recognize ourselves as gender non-conformers. Yeah. No. I definitely, I, I would definitely call myself gender non-conforming, like that I'm totally, you know, that I'm totally down, down with. Uh, and the, it, the fun thing is that the older I get, the more I'm just like, fuck it. There is still that gender policing that happens a lot. I find it happens a little less in, um, in New York and in San Francisco where I just was, it's pretty easy for me, but, um, <laughs> I was in rural, um, Oregon for my sister's graduation from uh, physical therapy school. And I went to one of those, like a TJ Maxx situation, you know, where they have like all the deep sales. Oh, and, I know TJ Maxx. Uh, girl. And I was deep in the women's section and like the looks people were giving me. And I was just like, I got so much clothes for so cheap that I was just like, fuck it. <laughs> this is my life now. Um, but yeah, the, the policing I, is deep. Still. Yeah. When I was shopping my sister over the holidays, I was like, do you like this shirt? And she says, I don't know. It kind of looks like a woman's shirt <laughs> negatively. And I was like, yeah, yeah I know. That's why I'm buying it. <laughs> yeah, I think that in the ways that queer couples have made straight couples more flexible mm -hmm. in their monogamy, in the ways their relationships looks, yeah. I have to like believe too that trans people and gender non-conforming people yeah. have made it easier for, for people like people. us yeah. to, or like all genders of people, Absolutely. to not confine themselves to historical gender norms. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that actually something you do quite radically, I mm -hmm. believe, is you call yourself a faggot. Oh yeah, uh -huh. and I say that because I think it's radical for a man to self-identify as a faggot when uh -huh. he also dates women. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. So as I get older, I realize more and more. I think there, I think that I would have if I were in a relationship, it would have to be with a queer woman or a queer person in general, just because. I am so tied to queerness and the queer community, but, um, yeah, I sort of, I call myself gay all the time, even though I definitely am attracted to women and, and all genders really. Um, I sort of use, I allow myself the flexibility to use the word that I find appropriate for the conversation. And also in my writing, um, I've written about, uh, HIV AIDS and I've written about, um, bodies, the gym and fitness, um, and in those conversations, I usually use the word gay for myself because that's the audience that I'm largely writing to. Um, and I sort of allow myself that um, and to sort of be um, queer, even when it comes to different identities, right? To be able to use the word that feels right for me at that time. It's like you're describing like code switching within exactly. our own community. Within the community. That's totally it. Um, and then, you know, again, um, I'll use the word gay, but also be honest about my ongoing attraction to women in the same, in the same essay or in the same conversation. And just kind of, again, just let that sit on the page. If it confuses people, it confuses people. And that's great. That's sort of how we learn also, right? Sort of by confounding people people's expectations for us and and I don't want to be treated with kid gloves no, too no no and I think one of the things that happens is we treat ourselves with kid gloves you know we sort of have these expectations that people won't understand us and so we sort of define ourselves in terms that are the lowest common denominator uh, and I have no interest in doing that yeah, yeah. so the the book is called inside out mm -hmm. and uh the inside outside is a lot of things. You mm -hmm. did the flossing story that's like literally inside. Yeah. Um, a small portion of that for me was feeling like an outsider, yeah, feeling absolutely. like an insider. Mm -hmm. And that is just such a recurring theme yeah. that I hear from people on this podcast, yeah. people in things, books I read, people in life, yeah. that they feel like an outsider. They don't know where they belong. Right. And particularly in our community, I just yeah. have to wonder, does everybody feel like an outsider? I think so. I mean, I think... 
So this was, a, I got a great question at one of the readings about exactly this. Like, what does it mean to be on the inside and the outside? Um, and I also, you know, the, the book has a, um, uh, a, a slash in the title, sort of, um, yeah. um, uh, uh, it's supposed to de- denote the end of a line in, in poetry. Um, and that is sort of meant to be a physical barrier between the two words and also a physical barrier in the title, um, something that like can't really be passed. And also a reminder that um, the inside and the outside are fully constructed and we construct them ourselves all of the time. We construct them internally. We construct them socially. Um, but I equated it in, in the talk back to um, capitalism and money in that, you know, the idea of money is something that is socially constructed. Like we give value to this piece of paper because we've all decided that that piece of paper has a certain amount of value. But just because this is a social construct doesn't mean it doesn't have absolutely violent consequences. If you don't have enough money, you die. Essentially, you starve. You don't have housing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So um, I, I really view the notions of insides and outsides as both internally and socially constructed, um, but also, you know, they can be really harmful. They can really harm, you know, feeling like an outsider is a generally a feeling that makes you um, feel like trash all the time, basically. It's funny you brought up capitalism because at one point in the book, you describe insiders as artists and entertainers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, for me, I certainly am drawn to um, cultural production. So I'm always sort of attracted to and drawn to people who are creative and artists, right? Um, and <laughs> tend not to be drawn, so drawn to people like bankers and consultants who are on the inside financially and have houses on Fire Island, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but that's sort of not, that's never been a thing that's been super attractive to me. Um, what's been super attractive to me always is like musicians and fashion designers and creative people who sort of make culture. I think that that cultural production is, is an insight to me. And it's interesting because um, to take a step back, um, I'm sort of becoming more and more on that inside, right? Like I have a book out, I have a podcast, um, I'm engaging more in, you know, essays that are getting a little bit of visibility visibility online I sort of am on the inside I think that one of the things that you learn I think both if you're seeking after financial stability as your inside or cultural production as your inside is that you can be actually quite inside and still not feel that way right yeah. you can always fe- you can always feel like an outsider that how many how many like you know celebrities or creatives are like at the peak of their field and they're just they still feel like an outsider right so what that says to me is that it's actually super important to construct our own communities where those questions are a bit more superfluous there it doesn't matter so much right so um you know have your queer family where whether or not your essay gets one click or 500,000 clicks they're gonna read it and talk to you about it and love you and also talk to you about other dumb shit right um yeah, I mean, you brought up your podcast, and I'm pretty um, jealous because there's like the four co-hosts, oh, yeah. and then for this one, it's just me. Yeah, you know, like I'm jealous of that community. Jeffrey. Yeah. <laughs> so much work. I know, but I'm jealous of that like yeah. innate community that's right there. Yeah, it is. I mean, it is um, their family, man. I mean, the, it's just when I had my surgery for my exploded butt, um, <laughs> you know, they all showed up with flowers and to take care of me. You know, oh. we we sort of love each other deeply across great difference. We're all quite different from one another, yeah. um, and definitely bring different 
different strengths and weaknesses to the table and we fight like brothers and sisters um which is like what you want to hear i don't want to listen to a podcast and hear people just agree with themselves i also mean like off mic oh really oh yeah i mean it's it's not you know we are all very strong-minded people um and but i do think that we try really hard both on mic and off to model what queer family can look like to, to, you know, we can, Fran and I had a conversation, um, where, you know, Fran and I are super different people in terms of how we view work and workflow and what's important. Uh, and, and we sort of were stepping on each other's toes and not being nice to one another. And we had to sit down and have a conversation. And I cried 17 times. Like I always do. And then Fran felt bad for making me cry, which he shouldn't have done because I always cry. Right. But like it was, it's really hard to be accountable to people and to love them across difference. And I think that that's what, that's what family at its best is. And that's what queer family at its best is. And I think that's one of the ways that love makes us grow up is that you can be really, really angry at someone, but you're not allowed to just walk away. Yeah. You know, you sort of have to reckon with who you are and who they are and try to talk across that um, and, and do it, without being mean that's really hard and it's work to find those communities so much work it took me it took me a long time and it's one of the reasons why uh, it's really hard for me to imagine leaving new york i don't want to be one of these like faggots who like hi new york is the only place out but it's new york is the people to me and it took me i've been there almost 12 years and it took me like five or six years to find my family uh, and, you know, straight people get to, like, move for their family all the time and no one gives them shit. Yeah. But, like, I stay in New York for my queer family, the people I love, the people who did take care of me um, when I had to have surgery. Uh, you know, that my family's far away. And when I had to have surgery, my friends made a Google Doc and they showed up and people stayed over. And, you know, it, it just... It's important, and I think it's okay to value that. It's deeply queer to say I'm going to make some life choices based on this circle of weirdo homo friends that I have. And as adult, it is, adults, it's a very difficult to find. Oh, so hard. I remember so uh, much in college that there's this people I was friends with. You know, we're friendly, yeah. whatever. They were a core group of friends, though. Yeah. And I was, again, like jealous of their connection. Yeah. And I'll never forget that, like, one night they invited me over just to hang out, something casual. And I went, and... It, it was fine, maybe yeah. a little boring, just like nothing crazy special. And I was so upset. Yeah. Because I was so upset because I was unhappy on the outside. That's and when right. I was let in the inside, exactly. I was also unhappy. So I was like, well, oh, where do I belong? That's exactly what the book is trying to do, right? There's that scene where it was one of my first dates with this boy. Um, and, you know, he had all these friends over who were sort of like this queer inside that I was so like long. And it's like, and then they're talking about boring shit and they're doing cocaine and I don't like, I'm just like this, <laughs> this is what I spent so long being like, Oh God, I know I'm inside of the little club. The club is trash. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. So part of that calms me thinking that like possibly <laughs> feeling like an outsider is the universal experience yeah. for the vast majority of us. I have a question for you though, Jeffrey, do yeah. you think, um, and I think I have an answer to this. Do you think that like upper middle class, straight white men imagine themselves outside as well? I have no idea. I think, I actually, I think they do. And I think the fact that that runs counter to literally all evidence of how the world works is sort of how you end up with the like maligned white Christian male that like 
that we see in our political world. Oh, because although the world was built to support uh-huh. them, they feel like they're an outsider. Uh-huh. Exactly. And so you end up with like the war on Christmas, right? You end up with sort of like, uh, you know, white men feeling like that everyone else is allowed to make jokes about everything else, but because they're a white man, all the jokes are at their expense. So there's becomes this like, outsiderness that's completely false and constructed it, it, false and constructed and yet in order to like move past this moment yeah. we'll need to deal with their feelings oh, even God. if we deem it as incorrect oh, oh, oh. <laughs> yeah and like I, and um, not to bring out the presidential election but um it didn't go the way i planned um <laughs> however um i think that it shined this light on this part of the population mm. that mm. does not feel heard or taken care of mm-hmm. and even though we it's, think they are we like we will need to deal with the fact that they believe they're not it's super hard jeffrey because so you know i'm i'm a a working class white faggot from a very rundown uh poor uh rural white community um none of this surprised me at all it surprised a lot of people but i'm literally from uh this type of place that everyone talks about being like the forgotten you know the sort of forgotten white working class people and I sort of feel super mixed about it because I empathize very deeply with the people who I grew up around and in. Uh, the 90s was an economically trash decade for a lot of working class people, including working class white people, right? Um, all of the jobs in my hometown essentially went away. The logging jobs went away. The small farming jobs went away. People had very hard lives and they lost what little livelihood they had. And that's trash. And people have a right to be angry about that. But what that is, is neoliberalism and capitalism and what the, you know, sort of white resentment is against immigrants and people of color and homosexuals. And that's, that's, you know, that's where we need to step in and have a conversation. We also need to have a conversation about the fact that uh, working people in this country of all colors and backgrounds have been uh, horribly affected in the economy. And the only people we tend to talk about or care about are these, you know, rural working class white folk. Uh, and they sort of drive a lot of the rhetoric around what's happening in the country. Um, yeah, and then to quote you in your book, oh God. Oh God. Um, I realize now, not in writing this, but in editing, that he hurt me is not an excuse to hurt others. Yes. I fucked up, forgive me. Yeah. And that talks about exactly what you're saying, yeah. which we think that like, our hurt is the only hurt that matters, right. whereas many people are hurting. And that, and that our hurt makes it okay to act shittily towards others. That's right. And I think that you're, you know, you're sort of using this example where I was dealing with a deep interpersonal hurt to talk about a political harm but I think we deal with hurt on all of those levels in very similar ways well I think that when we are hurt we can ignore the hurting of others because well well, they're hurting sure so am I and what is the what was the Baldwin quote he said um, I think that people are so angry um, because if they dealt with their if, if they got past their anger they'd have to deal with the pain I'm, I'm misquoting, but that's a, you know, sort of a paraphrase of, of, of a great quote by James Baldwin, where it's, it's, super, it's easier to be angry than it is to heal. You know, the healing, dealing with the pain and the hurt uh, actually takes a lot of emotional labor. It's really hard and it's much easier to sort of lash out and be angry um, and be righteously angry. And that, I do think that uh, that working class resentment of people all colors is very valid like people have a right to be angry with the way wealth distribution has moved from people who have very little to people who have a lot and the question is what do we do with that what do we do with the righteous anger and how do we deal with the pain how do we do it in ways that are constructive and allow us to grow in community with one another and be in solidarity with one another to affect change yeah because it's never constructive to say like your hurt doesn't matter no or isn't valid no you're right 
Um, I have to almost let you go, but we yeah. mentioned your podcast, yes. Food for Thought. Um, you guys play games on that we show. We do play games and, on And um, Joe brought a game here. Actually, should we play now? So at Food for Thought, we eschew binaries of all forms and find them reductive and find sexual labels reductive and awful. But we also kind of find them hilarious, Jeffrey. And so in this game, I'm going to list um, couples or two things. And you have to decide between the couple or the two things, which one would be the top and which one would be the bottom. Okay, all right, let's ready do to it. Play? Um, the, we're going to start a little easy and then move on to ones that might be quite controversial. Number one is Sunny and Cher. <laughs> I think Cher is the top, obviously. Uh, I mean, that's why it's an easy question. She's a Taurus. She's controlling. She has a lower voice and is much more talented. How do you know what her sign is? Uh, from Fran. Okay. Fran uh, loves Cher so much and is a Taurus also and will not shut up about it, basically. <laughs> um, the iPhone and the Samsung Gal- Galaxy. Oh, I'm like so torn at the moment. Oh, really? My iPhone's six years old. That's not true. Okay. It's three years old. Um, I don't, don't know. Don't be ageist. Do you they can s- have I old think, I think they're a switch. Oh, they're a switch. Ooh, I like that. And I like that you switch instead of verse. Okay. Um, next up, I might have to explain this one a little bit. RuPaul and Georges Labar. That's RuPaul's long-term partner and husband. Oh, I think RuPaul's a top. Yeah, I think... So this is a thing that a drag queen friend of mine told me, that almost all drag queens are tops. We're actually informing the public now the drag queens we've had on this show without naming names have been yeah i mean i think it's a thing that again it it sort of helps us break down this notion that femininity or sort of having uh being able to play with gender in that way means that you are going to be the receptive partner is just absolutely incorrect and i think that there's a certain like bravada that you have to have to be a drag queen that is like kind of a toppy energy actually yeah yeah yeah. um this one might be controversial um la gays and new york city gays <laughs> Are LA gays bottoms? <laughs> I think is that, is, is at that least question your answer? New York thinks they are. <laughs> New York definitely thinks <laughs> they are. I actually think that there's a country long double ended dildo <laughs> that just stretches from coast to coast and that we're all just bottoms. I, well, we're I, all bottoming for like Nebraska. <laughs> Nebraskans that moved to our cities. I think that um, New York gays on theory hate LA gays and LA gays don't care. That's okay. That's sort of fair. I mean, you have the palm trees in the weather, so you know what I mean? Yeah, goddamn right. Um, Melissa Etheridge's Come to My Window and Melissa Etheridge's I'm the Only One. Wait, sorry. Are you asking this because I think that she's the greatest singer slash artist of all time? did not know that, actually. Oh, really? I just really love her also. Um, I'm the only one top. Yeah, no, I mean, that's the only answer. Come to my mind, it was so, like, vulnerable. It's sort of letting yourself out yeah. there. It's asking to become inside. Yeah, I don't do vulnerability. Oh, I, mean, I like I like <laughs> her so much that I... <laughs> I was going to put you on this list somewhere. Did you just out yourself as a top? No, Jeffrey? please don't. Um, no, we'll see. Jeffrey um, Masters one I like on Twitter. I like Melissa Edwards so much. I even like her song called, like, Give Me, Like, a Drink of Water. Oh, my God. <laughs> Can you sing a bar for us? Can you? Oh, I'm not a singer. <laughs> um, a tech bro wearing an Apple Watch and a tech bro wearing Google glasses. Oh, the glasses are compensating all the way. <laughs> you think the glasses are a bottom? Yes. Interesting. I wonder if the, the glasses would allow you to like um, do POV porn in the sex that you're having. If you're wearing the glasses during sex, it's oh. like you could turn on the camera and videotape the whole thing. Oh, this has nothing to do with what you said, but I wonder like why no one's worn those in the Supreme Court before. Because like, you can't bring videos in there. <laughs> True. I bet they, they would know. Do they know? Do they, do they know? Okay. Um, Times New Roman and Garamond. <laughs> um, I'll go all the way for times as being the top. I totally agree. Cardi B and nail art. 
<laughs> Cardi B will top everybody. Always. And, and her nail art. She's topping the art that's on her nails right now. I like that she says her name in every song. I mean, branding. Hashtag branding. Um, Rihanna and Drake. Switch. I totally agree. Switch. They're so versatile. I mean, I just think Drake gets um, pegged by everyone he's with. Well, he's Jewish, and I find that Jewish men don't fall in stereotypical, like, oh, top-bottom roles that you interesting. assume. Interesting. So you just added yourself as a switch, jeffmasters1 at twitter.com. Hey, next question. <laughs> um, chips and salsa versus bruschetta. Oh, bruschetta, bruschetta, bruschetta. That's the top. Um, like, the... No, they, they bought him but from the top. Oh! <laughs> yeah, I think um, chips and salsa is not super bottom friendly for me, at least. You know what I mean? So it's a little too spicy. So I think that chips and salsa has to top, but you know. Um, Patrick and SpongeBob? Oh, um, I don't know. I don't really want that show. <laughs> um, Patrick seems sweet. I don't know. Um, and the last one, um, Lift Line and Hitchhiking. Oh, Lift Line mm-hmm. is like fun, adventurous. She'll do anything she needs. She'll do anything um, she needs. Lift Line has like a big ego and like will only top. I think hitchhiking is like getting fisted, actually. It's just like you know that it's going to be painful, but you're doing it anyway. I know someone who met a fuck buddy in a Lift Line. Did they fuck in the lift? They did not fuck in the lift. That's no. impressive, actually. Yeah. I mean, I don't like talking to people. So like this podcast interview thing that we've just done is like all the talking I'm going to do for the day. I'm going into a seclusion cha- chamber now where I can like. Thank you for calling my life work an interview thing. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, also, thanks for bringing that game. Oh, of course. Of course. Of course. I'm glad you got um, to, you were willing ab- to play. Absolutely. Before we let you go, yeah. we like to end every interview with. In a question, okay. it can be big or small, but mm-hmm. that is today, right now. What is the best piece of advice that you can give our listeners? Oh my goodness, it, my answer is just going to be super Pisces, and it's, it's not going to surprise anyone um, based on everything that I've said today. But it's just sort of um, be in yourself, listen to yourself, and don't be afraid to let that inside come out. You know, show yourself. At least to your intimates, people you trust, and then sort of expand that out to the world at large. I think that it's been so powerful for me to be a person who's super open. Uh, And I got scared that the more and more public my writing got, the harder that would be. And it's kind of been the opposite. So many people, so many people, strangers, et cetera, have reached out to me, you know, when I tweet about mental health or whatever and just said like oh you know and no one ever talks about this that made me feel so much better it makes me feel great to be sort of in conversation with people about things that i'm scared about like i'm scared about losing my mind i'm scared about mental health i'm scared about sex and hiv and so um being open about those things have allowed me great possibility for connection and i'm really really pleased that i've i've let myself be open about some things that are scary for me Thanks to Joe for that and for bringing the game. The podcast that he's a part of is called Food for Thought, and I'm really a big fan of theirs. So check that out. And then if you like our show, if you're still listening, please subscribe, rank us five stars, and leave a comment on iTunes. It is one of the biggest ways that new people can find our show. Also, I want to mention that I'm going to be doing AIDS Life Cycle this summer, where we'll be cycling from San Francisco to Los Angeles to raise money for the life-saving services that the San Francisco AIDS Foundation and LA LGBT Center provides. If you want 
want to or are able to contribute, I would absolutely love that. And every little bit counts. I have a page up at tofighthiv.org slash go to slash Jeff Masters one. There's also a link in the show notes and across all my social medias. I tweet from at Jeff Masters one. That's the best way to recommend guests. And I love hearing from you every week. And then you can also sign up for our newsletter at lgbtqpodcast.com to stay up to date on all new episodes and live shows. Special thanks to our partners at Panoply, our old home at Afterbus TV, the Elon University of Los Angeles studio, Jason McMurdy, and everyone for listening. We'll see you next week. Thank you.